1: Tonight, from the source, a federal judge denied Donald Trump's long bid for a trial after the election, instead scheduling it two years sooner than the former president had wanted, and right on the eve of one of the biggest dates on the political calendar. Plus, a risky move by his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, taking the stand for hours in his own defense, offering his explanation of that phone call now at the center of the Georgia case and prosecutors in Spain tonight, launching a criminal investigation after that unwanted kiss at the World Cup and a strange new development. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. (music) Donald Trump's attorneys in court today in both Georgia and Washington, a marathon hearing in Fulton County, ending without a ruling from the judge, after hours of surprising testimony from his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who, of course, is fighting to get his case moved from federal court and potentially ultimately dismissed. Meadows was questioned on the stand about the former president's infamous phone call with Georgia secretary of state that is at the heart of this investigation. Of course, Meadows himself was also on that call.
2: Mr. President, everybody is on the line. And just so, this is Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, just so we all are aware.
1: But first, to the critical hearing in Washington in the federal election interference case, where U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin denied Trump's long-shot bid for a trial in April of 2026 and at times urged his defense attorney to lower the temperature not once but twice today after it got heated inside the courtroom. She also did not grant the special counsel's request for a trial starting in January. And instead, jury selection is going to start on March 4th. That is the day before Super Tuesday. Trump responded to that date by criticizing Judge Chuck who he previously had been warned against with his inflammatory rhetoric, with her saying that it could potentially speed up that trial. Perspective now from Ladoris Hazard Cordell, a retired California Superior Court judge, Judge, thank you for joining us again tonight here on The Source. What do you make of the March 4 trial date that that was set today by Judge Chutkin? Do you think it's fair?
3: Oh, it's absolutely fair. Judge Chutkin uh, deliberated, heard everyone, both sides, and set a date that I think is a reasonable date. It may get changed, but for now I think it's reasonable. But I'll tell you, Caitlin, the, the, the moment in that hearing that struck me I can only have two words to describe it as stunningly stupid, and that was when Trump's attorney uh, compared their dis- their desire to delay the case to what happened in the case of Powell versus Alabama, a 1931 case involving the Scottsboro Boys who were convicted of raping two white women, and the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and their convictions were reversed. And what the Trump team did was say that. Well, what happened in that trial is what could happen here in this trial, which is absolutely absurd. In the Scottsboro case, the Scottsboro boys were indicted and were in trial six days later, not even given the opportunity to choose their attorneys. In this case, there is an indictment, but that was uh, the trial date is seven months out. He has experienced lawyers, a whole team, investigators, and it was stunningly stupid because, one, the comparison is ridiculous. But second, if you want to alienate a judge in a case, this was exactly what to do. Uh, A female judge, a black judge, and to talk about that case and compare it to Trump's case was absurd. And Judge Chutkin really took them up on it and said, this case is entirely different. I think she was absolutely offended. It was really a stunningly stupid thing to do.
1: Yeah, she noted, as you did there, I mean, the timing difference of that and also just the completely different cases. I mean, if you had been the judge in that room today, what would you have said to to Trump's defense attorneys when they brought that up?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, I would have read the pleadings and probably maybe had a law, law clerk with me. And I think my first thing would have been, wait, what? having read it, and then decided, oh, we're going to address this in the courtroom. And she did. She said it was profoundly different. And I think she was offended. Uh, so hopefully uh, there's a learning curve on the lawyer's side uh, to not go rogue like this again and take cases that have absolutely nothing in common and try to show that they do have something in common, which in case, this case they did not.
1: And one of the biggest points of disagreement was over the amount of discovery, the timing here. And Judge Chutkin was saying, you know, discovery in 2023, it's not like sitting in a warehouse with boxes of paper where you're looking at every single page. But do you think the, the defense has a legitimate point when they say it is a lot to go through in this in this time frame that they have on their hands?
3: I think the defense has a very good point to make about discovery and going through the documents. As you've noted, fortunately, we're at a time where things are digitized. You can do word searches to look through documents. So it, it's not to belittle the fact that there are lots of documents that have to be gone through. At the same time, this judge is aware that this is a new day, and there is a way that they don't have to sit down and go through every single piece of paper. In addition, the the, the prosecution has said, look, we're not even going to use classified documents when we present our case. So I, I think she I know she gets it. And having been a litigator herself, she understands. She was a defense attorney. She understands exactly what's involved in discovery. So I think this was a fair conclusion for her to come through to give them the time to go through the documents and be ready to go to trial in March.
1: Trump wasn't at that hearing today, but he wrote on social media shortly after that he is going to appeal this date. I mean, is it clear to you on what grounds he would appeal this on? Could be able to—is that even possible here?
3: I think it is not possible, and his lawyers know this. To appeal a trial date, it's not possible. So it's it's all talk, which is what he does. Uh, this man has a constant need to talk. Sometimes um, the, the talk is just makes it's incoherent, makes no sense, and this makes no sense. His lawyers know you can't appeal a trial date, so. Um, this talking will continue, and I will tell you, he is a nightmare for his lawyers. When you have somebody like Trump who has a fragile ego, who is a misogynist, who is a racist, in my view, and who also has this constant need to talk, then there's a term for that, logoria, uh, then that is a real problem. It's going to be an issue for his lawyers to try to keep him uh, quiet, even in the courtroom, and. It, what A black woman judge is going to be there telling him when he can talk and how to behave. So this is going to be a very interesting, interesting trial. Uh, that is the
1: understatement. But Judge Cordell, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. And I want to bring in Ellie Honig, a former federal prosecutor, and David Kelly, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, we have, I want to get to some of the points that the judge made there, Ellie, but it's not what the special counsel team was looking for, but it's definitely not what Trump's team was looking for. I mean, what do you make of the date and whether or not um, how Trump's attorneys are feeling about this?
4: So it's definitely a win for DOJ. And if I was Trump's attorneys right now, I'd be devastated. I think, look, the judge has very wide discretion to set this trial date. I think the judge we just heard from is correct that there's no practical way to appeal this. But I also think we need to be careful here, we collectively, because this trial date is really pushing the limits on Trump's Sixth Amendment right to fully prepare his defense. There are 12 million documents in this case. I know they're not in a warehouse. You still have to review them. I know that the prosecution put together a hit list of best documents. That's nice. It's the defense's decision what they're going to use. They are, in addition to reviewing those documents, they get to do their own investigation. They have to bring motions. And I think to require them to do that in seven months is really getting close to the line constitutionally.
5: You agree with that? Yeah, I, I Look, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. I I think that's a fine argument that Ellie makes, but I also think that um, the prosecution has made a really good case here as to how they can proceed in a prudent way and in a fair way. um, And I think they can do it. Look, I also think, frankly, that while this trial date is cut and, you know, set in stone, it's probably going to get pushed. Most trial dates do.
1: But how far do you think it'll get pushed?
5: I don't think we'll get pushed too far. Um, I think we'll still get before the election, but I think that's still an aggressive date. And I think that um, there's still a lot of flex. Trials get, you know, at the last minute, you know, the motions drag on, um, something comes up. If this went when she said it, I'd be, I'd be surprised. Well,
1: she is referencing, though, what Trump is doing, running for office, saying, though, that he shouldn't be treated any differently, that an athlete wouldn't be treated any differently if they had games to go to, that Trump is not going to be treated any differently because he has primaries and caucuses. I mean, what do you make of the fact that, that it is set the one day before Super Tuesday?
4: Uh, I agree with her. I think, in theory, he shouldn't be treated any differently. But let's just treat him as a normal defendant. I mean, the average federal conspiracy fraud case takes about two years to get to trial, Um, forcing him to trial in seven months is actually quite abnormal. It's not entirely unheard of. But yeah, I'm not not moved by the fact that he's running for office. I do think, let's be honest, the judge in DOJ is very much thinking about the election date. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. not going to say it. DOJ is certainly going to religiously avoid saying it. But they're aware that that trial date's there. And they're trying to get this trial in before the election. I don't think there's any question about that. So I think there's a little bit of intellectual dishonesty happening here. Oh, we can't think about the election. Of course, they're trying to get this in before. You're
1: November. saying that by saying it's not political, that like, it is still a little bit yeah, political. They're obviously that trying
4: to get it in before November. I mean, let, let's be real.
1: There is reporting, though, that Jack Smith was sitting in the room today. He wasn't he didn't speak. It was the other prosecutors who were the one that, ones that were making their argument. But he was taking notes. I mean, what do you what do you think he's taking notes of paying attention to what Trump's defense? Look, is saying?
5: Look, look, at the end of the day, the buck stops there. And he wants to make sure he's really plugged in. He's supervising this case and he wants to, he owns it. Um, so, you know, I think he's doing what any, I certainly would would be there and, and taking notes and thinking to myself how to, you know, what's the next step? This is a chess game. What are we, what are we going to do next?
1: John Laro was making this argument saying, when he was arguing that it's moving too fast, this is Trump's defense attorney saying that, you know, I don't know that I can, you know, do my best essentially. Did he seem to be setting up an argument oh, where yeah. if there is a conviction- they'd be making an appeal that they didn't have time to get ready for this.
4: We've both seen this, uh, for sure. Defense lawyers will do this. It sounds counterintuitive, but defense lawyers will say, judge, I cannot give effective assistance of counsel to my client under these conditions. They do it not infrequently, and they do it precisely for that reason. They're trying to make a record so that if it goes up an appeal, they can say, look, the lawyer warned everybody. He wasn't able to do his job.
1: But with this timeline, if that is what happens, could this conviction stand if there is one
5: Yes and I think the government has made a really good good case for how they why they can proceed as soon as they can um, they've provided all this stuff I mean the number of the volume that have been pre- have been produced in discovery I think is a little misleading because a lot of it is public re- public records stuff that's been available for a long time Truth social stuff Post. that they know it's stuff that he generated himself. Um, so I think for them to say, you know, make comparisons that they'd have to read the war, war and peace five times a day in order to get ready, that's a, that, that's a you know, I don't think that carries any water. Um, I, I think that the, a lot of the stuff that the government produced is going to have no use to them at trial.
1: One really interesting point today was when there was questions from the prosecutors about if Trump's defense team, if they poll D.C. residents, that it could taint the jury pool. And the judge seemed very interested in that, asking that she wanted to know if John Laro does do that. Is that normal? Yeah,
4: no, I've never heard of that. I don't, I don't know if you have, Dave. Uh, to, to go around to civilians and, and sort of take their pulse on Donald Trump, I, I assume it's some sort of trial preparation, jury preparation. How is he received here? Well, I think, I think, what are we I looking think, for in jury I think what selection? they're trying to
5: yeah. do is trying to set up a motion for a change of venue. Oh, yeah. Um, is that going to be
1: successful, though?
5: No. No. Yeah, no see. chance. No. I don't, I don't see it. I mean, look, what, what their argument is is that Um, District of Columbia voted overwhelmingly um, for Biden. Um, And, you know, so, but this is not a political, this is not a campaign. This is not an election. This is whether or not jurors, notwithstanding what they know about the defendant, can still be fair and reasonable and consider the evidence um, through a a clear prism without any sort of prejudice or bias. It's not if they're gonna vote for the guy, they don't have to like him, they don't have to vote for him. They just have to be true to their word, true to their oath, to look at the evidence clearly and and make their decision based only on the evidence
1: david kelly ellie honig thank you both coming up tro trump co-defendant and former top aide mark meadows who we just referenced surprised the room today when he took the stand in Doris. you can see the court sketch here it's a risky move to move his case to federal court but what it could mean for everyone if he succeeds And also tonight, a potentially life-threatening storm is headed for Florida, expected to strengthen into a hurricane where and when it's expected to hit. The battle over whether to move the Georgia racketeering case against Donald Trump and some of his co-defendants to federal court officially kicked off today as Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, took the stand under oath. It was a surprising move, one that most criminal defendants are not willing to take, especially this early in the legal process. But Meadows is hoping to move his case not only to a more favorable jury pool potentially, but also maybe a more favorable judge who potentially could dismiss the charges against him completely. The all-day hearing, though, ended on a cliffhanger. The judge stopped it without a ruling, said he would rule as soon as possible, given arraignments are barely a week away, expected to start on September 6th. That is going to be a very busy day. Mark it on your calendars. Trump and a long list of co-defendants will be entering pleas on the same day, just 15 minutes apart, starting with the former president himself at 930 that morning. Joining me now to discuss Jeff Duncan, Georgia's former lieutenant governor, who testified, of course, before the Fulton County grand jury. Jen Jordan, a former Georgia state senator and attorney. And Michael Moore, also a former U.S. attorney from Georgia. Michael, let me start with you, because, you know, what did you make of Meadows taking the stand under oath? How risky is this potentially?
6: Well, it's a pleasure to be with all of you tonight. Uh, You know, it's unusual to see a criminal defendant get on the stand and give any testimony under oath. And most lawyers sort of shy away from that. What it tells me is his legal team, in this case at least, is thinking about making a complete record that will likely find its way before an appellate court and that they needed to get evidence out from him that would be unique to him. So in other words, they wanted to hear him talk about his job, how he perceived his duties, how he perceived the functions that he was doing, to find out if he could meet that standard, and even it's a low standard and a low bar, to have his case uh, removed to the federal court. And so I I really think it was a strategic move. Uh, We'll see if it hurts him down the road. But at this point, he's now created a record where he has, without a doubt, stated that he felt like what he was doing and the and the job description that he had uh, falls clearly within his role as chief of staff under federal employment. And that's that's going to be critical, whether it's Judge Jones that decides it, whether it's the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals that decides it, or whether ultimately it's the Supreme Court that, that looks at this and makes this, this ultimate decision.
1: Yeah, and speaking of his duties, Jen, I mean, Meadows testified that Trump's call with the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, was just his own attempt to resolve the former president's concerns about voter fraud and, quote, land the plane on the, quote, whole transfer of power to Biden. I mean, but that clearly is not what Georgia officials thought was happening there.
7: No, and that's why the secretary of state was there to testify in terms of what his perception of the call was. Look, at the end of the day, uh, Meadows had to testify because there was no one else. Um, if you looked at the, the list of witnesses that the parties put out, the only person that was listed was Meadows, because who else is he going to call? Is he going to call the other 18, um, you know, co-conspirators that have been indicted um, by uh, Fonnie Willis? He can't. I mean, so he is really the only person who can speak to um, really what he did and, and what his thought process was. But at the end of the day, the way he kind of framed it, it made him seem like a glorified secretary. It was as if the only thing he did was pass notes and, and take care of the calendar. But that is clearly not what was going on. And I think that the Secretary of State's testimony um, this afternoon really did clarify that.
1: Yeah, Jeff Raffensberger was on the stand, too. He said he believed this call was on behalf of the, the campaign, therefore not an official White House duty. He said, quote, it was a campaign call. I mean, how much does that undercut what Meadows testified to today?
2: Well, I think today was just a small microcosm of what we're going to see play out between now and the general election. Just all the different drip drip of all the, the different strategies. I mean, I'm, I'm expecting 19 different approaches to to battling these, these indictments. Uh, and, and the whole theory of it being campaign related or official related. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, they're trying to argue that they have the right to challenge the election, which they did have the right to challenge the election. And they actually got relief from that. They got three challenges to the election, but that's similar to walking into a bank and saying, I want $11,780. And they tell you, well, you don't have $11,780. Well, I do. All that's fine, but then you can't turn around and splice up videotapes like they did at the State Farm Arena. You can't accuse people of rigging the machines. You can't say the operators on the ATMs or the tellers are are crooked and then expect it to not be called a fraud. That's where this debarkation line of, of asking and challenging versus fraud. And that's the challenge that I think they're sitting in.
1: Yeah. I mean, for all of this, Michael, Trump's attorneys were there in the courtroom today. I mean, what could they glean from not just what they heard from Mark Meadows, but also what they heard from from Secretary Raffensberger
6: Well, they got a good chance to sort of get a dry run at how Raffensperger is going to testify. They also got a sneak peek at some of the the, the arguments that the government's going to make, uh, both to the motions that will be forthcoming on behalf of Trump and also uh, how it may go at trial. Remember that a president and vice president are not subject to the Hatch Act provisions, which is what we've been hearing about. Whether or not you know that this was some kind of illegal campaign activity, and Meadows was acting on behalf of the president. And so the judge is going to have to look and say, well, 154 of those 157 overt acts that the district attorney has alleged were part of the conspiracy were done while Trump was a sitting president of the United States. And so how does that play into Meadows' job? And Trump's lawyers had a chance to hear this. They'll now know what to expect from Raffensburger. They'll know he's going to say it's a campaign call. They'll know about the arguments on whether or not, you know, they think this is some kind of campaign violation on Meadows' part or otherwise. But it really gives them a, a very brief, and it's very brief, frankly, a preview into the case to come. Um, and, and I think it also tells us that we will have a number of versions uh, circling around both in the interpretation of the telephone call. And even if you listen to that call where Meadows says, this is the chief of staff, and apparently they're calling from the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, it's an it's a unique introduction. Uh, clearly, he didn't say this is the Trump campaign. Now, whether or not that's dispositive to the federal judge, I doubt it. But it's but it's a piece of information that'll get put into the mix as they decide how it should move forward, and maybe compelling to an appellate court.
1: Yeah, and one thing that he was repeatedly asked by prosecutors, Jen, was about why he visited that Atlanta facility where Georgia officials were auditing ballot signatures. He said he was there on his own volition, his chief of staff. He was already in Georgia visiting his two children for Christmas. But how does that explanation sit with, with a judge here?
7: I, I think that's what you're pointing out is like how— inconsistent a lot of the statements were. So on one hand, he has absolutely no agency to do anything. He's basically just an errand boy, right? On the second hand, he's in Georgia and he just happens over to Cobb County where they're doing an audit with the GBI standing right there and it's not public and he's trying to force him way in. But he's just kind of doing that because he's trying to kind of think ahead to what the president might want him to do. And really what I cannot believe is that their strongest argument, what Michael was just talking about is, well, the president wasn't subject to the Hatch Act. And so if the president tells him to do something that violates the Hatch Act and because he's not, then somehow does that mean that he's not responsible for a violation of the Hatch Act, meaning Meadows. That that just is all circular. It doesn't make sense. And it really does underscore why you should never put a criminal, um, someone who has been accused of, of, of criminal activity like Mr. Meadows on the stand under oath, especially this early in the case.
1: One thing that someone highlighted today, Jeff, was how in his memoir that he wrote after leaving office, Meadows said his job as chief of staff, he believed, was to, quote, tell the most powerful man in the world when you believed that he was wrong. But I mean, is it clear that that Meadows didn't do that when when it probably mattered the most here?
2: Well, he must have whispered it in his ear and not said it out loud because I certainly have never seen examples of him standing up to Donald Trump or the ridiculous nature of of where this is headed. I I, I mean, I think it's so interesting to watch this continue to play out like some sort of Ponzi scheme of lies that just kind of built. And if you just look at all of their defenses at this point, it's all technicalities. It's, well, I did it under this official guise or I did it under this uh, unofficial purpose. The reality is nobody's doubling down on the facts, right? We're two and a half years into this, and I think that's the biggest hurdle they're going to have to climb. When you go on a two-plus-year crime spree from coast to coast, this is what, you know, a lot of folks are complaining about the calendars. When you have four trials to have to compete with on a calendar, you're not going to be able to, you know, skip certain days because it's your birthday or skip certain days because you got a nail appointment, right? You're going to have to actually go face the music. And that's really what's playing out here. As as a Republican, the dashboard is going off with lights and bells and whistles telling us all the warning things we need to know, right? 91 indictments, fake Republican, $8 trillion worth of debt, everything we need to see to not choose him as our nominee, including the fact that he's got the moral compass of more like an ax murderer than a president. Uh, We need to do something right here, right now. This is either our pivot point or our last gasp as Republicans.
1: Jeff, Jen, Michael, all our Georgians in one place. Thank you so much for joining me tonight.
3: Thank you. always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Meanwhile, the former president is trying to ratchet up the pressure to get an impeachment inquiry launched against his successor, President Biden. Is the House Speaker going to bite or will the threat of a potential backlash from moderates get him to back down? Tonight, the Trump campaign is calling the date set for the former president's election interference case, quote, election interference. That is House Republicans are hoping to launch an impeachment inquiry, not exactly impeachment itself, into President Biden, potentially as soon as next month. Only yesterday, Trump was calling for House Republicans to do so to impeach President Biden, saying, quote, they did it to us. Joining me tonight, CNN political commentator Jamal Simmons and CNN senior political commentator Scott Jennings. Scott, I mean, Trump is going to be dealing with his trials, obviously, but now we've seen Republicans as they are divided over over whether or not to even launch the inquiry in and of itself and what that would mean. And McCarthy is saying, you know, just doing an inquiry is not the same as an actual impeachment vote, but that clearly is not going to be enough for the former president.
0: Well, it may not be enough for him in the moment, but it should be because it's the correct strategic move. And I would be shocked, by the way, if an inquiry gets launched without a full vote of the House, but think about where we've come from. Six months ago, we knew virtually nothing. And now after what the House Republicans have done, uh, both uh, Speaker McCarthy and the committee chairs and various committees, I mean, think about how much we now know about the Biden family activities. So doing an inquiry would unlock a whole bunch more investigative tools And it would allow them to turn over even more rocks than they've already been able to turn over. If you're Donald Trump, you want as much information as you can to give the Republicans the best possible foundation should an impeachment be necessary. So an inquiry is the right move. A vote on it is the right move. And I think uh, based on what I uh, have heard, that's the direction they would be headed.
1: Yeah, but they still haven't found anything or or produced anything that has tied it directly to, to President Biden, as they've alluded. And Jamal, I mean, our reporting is that some Republicans are, are not convinced that they have uncovered evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, which, of course, is the bar for impeachment. So, I mean, how do you see it? Do you see it as with Trump's post saying, you know, if they did it to us, we should do it to them, is a sense of retribution?
8: Of course it is. Uh, you know, impeachment is supposed to be for a high crime and misdemeanor. This is an impeachment in search of a high crime and misdemeanor. You're not supposed to do it In retribution, because they did it to us, which is what Donald Trump did. And, you know, this is like, he just keeps saying the quiet part out loud. I was listening to the last segment you did about Mark Meadows and whether or not he was doing election campaign activity. Remember, they run roughshod over all the norms, right? This was the same government where they had the Republican National Convention on the south lawn of the White House. So they've erased all the lines between what's appropriate government behavior that we've all lived by for generations and what is political behavior because Donald Trump says so. We can't have a government that continues that way.
1: Well, I mean, Scott, also just looking at what next year would look like. I mean, a Biden impeachment, if that is what House Republicans do ultimately pursue, that adds to what we're seeing with the 2024 campaign calendar, Trump could be in court the day before Super Tuesday and those races are held. I mean, what does that split screen look like for for your party, for Republicans, if Trump's in court as as voters are going to the polls and Republicans in the House are, are holding impeachment hearings for President Biden?
0: Well, I mean, it depends on what the evidence is. And that's why an inquiry may ultimately be what's needed here, because there is a lot that's been uncovered. You but say Trump it hasn't been even tied directly to inquiry, Joe Biden, Scott. but he's already...
1: He just wants it to go straight to the impeachment. I'm
0: sorry? Yeah, that's what Donald Trump wants. And what I'm saying is the way the House Republicans have handled it so far, by using the committees and the investigative tools that they have at their disposal, by building evidence and starting to build a foundation... That is the correct strategic play. So his emotional impulse here and his stated reason for wanting it because they did it to us is incorrect. The correct way to do it is to find the facts and to build a foundation. And if the facts and the foundation warrant it, then you proceed. So I actually trust what Speaker McCarthy and the committee chairs are doing because that's what they're doing. They're on a fact-finding mission right now, and an inquiry would give them even more tools. But in terms of what this would look like politically— I mean, if the facts warrant an investigation and ultimately an impeachment into Joe Biden, then I guess the voters would have to take that into consideration the same way they're taking into consideration what's happening to Donald Trump right now. But to me, it's all based on, do you have the goods? And they may need the inquiry in order to get to that stage.
1: Yeah, I mean, they haven't convinced their own party fully. I mean, a Republican who did not speak on the record told my colleague Melanie Zenona. There's no evidence that Joe Biden got money or that Joe Biden agreed to do something so that Hunter could get money. There's no evidence of that. And they can't impeach without that evidence. And I don't think that the evidence exists. But, Jamal, if they do launch the inquiry, will voters understand? Will voters get that or will it seem like this equivalent of, well, Trump's on trial, but Hunter or President Biden is being impeached? And, and Hunter Biden's legal issues are, are muddied into that as well.
8: Yeah. At the heart of this, Caitlin, is a tragedy about the president's son who had an addiction to uh, drugs. And through that addiction to drugs, he made a series of bad decisions. The president admitted that he said that Hunter Biden was going to go to court. And admit that. People around America know what happens when you have a family member who's addicted to drugs and how painful that is for everybody. So what we cannot do is have a government impeachment because the president's son made a series of bad decisions and perhaps misrepresentations. I think that's, that's the problem here. And let's just keep one more thing in mind. When we get to October of this year, we now know October 23rd is the first trial set. When it comes to the Georgia case for one of the defendants, there will be a series of information, a lot of information that start to come out, facts, new facts about President Trump's behavior beginning in October. So before we ever get to perhaps a March date for the president, we're already going to know more things about the president's behavior that will influence the Republican primary process.
1: He might already have it locked up. by Can then. I just
8: it's... respond to that real quick? No, I, go
0: ahead, Scott. I, I, can I can I just I, I'm sorry the, the idea that this can all be waved away because Hunter Biden was a drug addict who made bad decisions, completely absolves what we know about Joe Biden, who has repeatedly lied about what he knew about Hunter Biden's activities, about his involvement in Hunter Biden's activities, about the fact that he was apparently on phone calls, about the fact that Hunter Biden was getting millions of dollars from shady people overseas. All of this cannot be waved away by having an addict in your family who made bad decisions. He was the vice president of the United States, He's now the president of the United States, and I'm sorry, but he has to go to a higher standard than simply waving all of this away. You do not hire Hunter Biden for tens of millions of dollars so Joe Biden can talk to you about the weather on the telephone. Nobody believes that, and that's why these investigations are serious, more serious than you're making them out to be.
8: Caitlin, let's just remember one thing. Hunter Biden was a private citizen. Donald Trump hired Jared Kushner, who could not get a permanent security clearance, because of his affiliations and some of his business dealings, so he was in the White House. So this isn't about. <laughs> let's just have some parody here. Is about Hunter how Biden we in the White
0: House? Jamal, is Hunter Biden in the White House? He was not in the Does White House. Which White is House? why?
8: Why are we having a conversation? Is he? About I'm, Hunter I'm Biden asking you. Has we he been living have a conversation in the White House? about Jared Kushner? Did you want to have an? Did you want to have an he's impeachment in inquiry you can, based on Jared know, Kushner's inability to get a security? Hold on here
1: because. There, are, there is a way to say you have questions about what President Biden knew and people have asked those questions to him and uh, of course you can look at his pats comments there Scott but Hunter Biden does not have a taxpayer funded job there're different situations here in that sense uh, of saying just because uh, he, he's attending a state dinner and at the white house amount of time same. in the
0: white house he, fla- right, he But it's not the same as having a taxpayer funded job in the white Air house Force like Jared two. Kushner
1: did is, was my point
8: He wasn't negotiating middle east I mean, peace I, I And then raising money from Middle East from from Middle East uh, does does not have tremendous
0: influence over his father. I don't think anybody buys that. Jared Kushner was
8: negotiating Middle East peace and then raised billions of dollars from Middle East uh, sovereign wealth funds.
1: Jamal Simmons, Scott Jennings, thank you for that robust conversation. Uh, We'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Ahead, there is new surveillance video that has just been released in the racist rampage that happened in Jacksonville and left three black victims dead over the weekend. We have new details that we are learning about the shooter tonight when we return. Tonight, new video shows the moment that a 21-year-old gunman entered a Jacksonville, Florida, Dollar General store before killing three people who were black. The gunman was white, and the Jacksonville sheriff says there is no question that the attack was racially motivated. Police say that he left a racist manifesto on his computer. One of his weapons, an assault rifle, was decorated with swastikas. Officials say that the gunman's first target was actually Edward Waters University, a historically black school in the state. But a security officer there confronted him and followed him off campus, potentially saving dozens of lives. Here to discuss what we are learning tonight, these new details, is retired Missouri Police Captain Ron Johnson. And thank you so much for being here. I mean, the sheriff says that they have this manifesto on their hands, that they will eventually be releasing at least parts of it. What would you be looking for in something like that?
9: Well, the actual verbiage that was in there. So we start talking about racially motivated. We want to see what the verbiage is and where he's getting his uh, verbiage from. Uh, Look at his Internet sources and books that he may have read. So it'll tell us a lot about his mindset. Uh,
1: Because essentially, the shooting is being investigated as a hate crime. We know that. What evidence beyond just the verbiage would they be needing to look for to make sure that it could be categorized as a hate crime?
9: We may look at uh, other people that he may be in contact with, other groups he may uh, follow. And so I think we'll look at all those things, and it'll tell law enforcement a lot about uh, the mindset that he had on that day, uh, and his thinking overall.
1: The, the sheriff said that when the shooter was 15, he was held under the state's Baker Act. And for those who don't know, it, it allows people who pose a risk to themselves or to others to involuntarily be detained for potentially up to 72 hours. And normally people who are detained under that act cannot buy firearms. But both of his guns were purchased legally, we now know. I mean, what questions do you have either about, about the strength of red flag laws or the concerns that even if the warning signs are there, that sometimes they could be missed or this still ultimately happens?
9: Well, I think there's a lot of things that are in place, a lot of systems in place, but a lot of times they don't talk to each other. And we have to make sure all these things that are in place, uh, they connect. And that's, you know, our, our uh, politicians, our lawmakers have to get together and make sure all these things connect so we can prevent things like this.
1: And I mean, part of that is, It's a pattern, I think, and that's what what concerns people, because we have what happened here, and officials there saying it's clearly a hate crime. In Texas earlier this year, the neo-Nazi, the shooting there. In Buffalo, the white supremacist who opened fire in the top supermarket. The FBI says hate crimes have actually risen 12% in 2021, the majority targeted because of their race. I mean— are there questions, are there limits to what law enforcement can do about people who are considered lone wolves that are very clearly motivated by hate?
9: Well, I think from a law enforcement standpoint, uh, many agencies have uh, officers and that's their job where they look on the internet and they're looking for these lone wolves. Uh, But it is tough. But I think we have to depend on our, our citizens, our family members. And just like the college there in Florida, The students alerted the uh, law enforcement officers. So we have to make sure that we're diligent in in those efforts around reporting.
1: Captain Ron Johnson, thank you for joining us with your uh, perspective on this, which is uh, of course perfect for this. Thank you. And tonight we remember the three victims of that shooting in Jacksonville, and we are thinking of their families. Coming up, protests are growing for calls for Spain's soccer chief to resign and a criminal investigation into that forcible kiss at the World Cup. We have new details on that investigation. Spanish prosecutors have now opened a criminal investigation into that country's Football Federation president, Luis Rubiales, after he forcibly kissed the World Cup soccer champion, Jennifer Hermoso. The calls for Rubiales to resign have only grown louder And today, Spain's regional soccer chiefs held an emergency meeting where they unanimously called for him to step down. He has said the kiss was consensual, but Hermoso has said she felt violated and that she never gave any consent whatsoever. His family tonight is sticking by him. Earlier today, his mother locked herself inside of a church and said that she will starve herself to protest how her son is being treated. Joining me now, Carrie Champion, a CNN contributor and host of the Carrie Champion show. Carrie, I mean, when you look at this, how do you see this ending?
10: Well, first off, I don't even know how we got here. Eight days later, and we're not even talking about a historic win for the Spanish World Cup team for the women. I see this ending to your question with Rubiales. He must resign. The players said they will not play unless he's gone. The administration is against him. They opened a criminal investigation. And this shows that something else is happening in this country in real time. Caitlin, it's there. And I heard a government official say this. It's their Me Too moment.
1: Yeah, that it's, it it does seem like this moment of a reckoning, and that it's become bigger than just this one incident because it, it it's kind of set off this this debate about feminism, about equality, about harassment. I mean, what do you make of the fact you do note that they they had this big win, but it's become more than the win. It's become more about you know how they've been treated for years. This wasn't just a one off kind
10: of thing. You you nailed that You said it exactly correct. That culture to their to their admission. Uh, has been very much chauvinistic in a lot of ways towards the women and machismo. And right now, what we're witnessing in real time, with this just being the example, Ruby Ellis is of the school of that's the way it's always been done. Employee can, can kiss the employer. What's the What do you mean? What's the problem? And he is realizing in real time, that's not what you do anymore. Not on a world stage, not with everyone watching, especially in a huge event like this. And you must conduct yourself differently. If he had apologized, simply said I was wrong and was really contrite, he would have his job, I believe. But he has to go now.
1: I had the same thought today about how he's handled this. I mean, he has been very defiant, not defying that he did what he did, but defying, you know, that he's claiming it's uh, that it was consensual. And instead of, you know, taking into account that very clearly how a large group of women feel about his treatment of them, he has continued to be defiant. I mean, how much longer do you think he can
10: he can do that? Uh, you know, I, what was weird to me is that there's no one in that country that can remove that president from his position. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure they're going to rethink this because the reason why he's being so defiant is because he's being told quietly behind closed doors, you've been the most successful president that we've had. They can't lose you. And now he's playing this game of checkers while the world is playing chess. He's going to have to acknowledge that what he did is no longer acceptable, no matter what he thought he was doing. Because in his mind, it was like, oh, joyous. I just gave her a kiss. It's not a big deal. And everyone's like, wait, what is employers don't kiss their employees? Here's the PSA, sir. And now we're going to see him lose his position, quite frankly, probably his career, because they're making him the example.
1: Yeah, the women on that team. Carrie Champion, thank you. Thank you. Ahead, evacuations have been ordered along the Gulf Coast to Florida as Tropical Storm Idalia is churning ever closer, expected to strengthen into a dangerous hurricane. How dangerous? We'll tell you the latest on its path next. Tonight, the state of Florida preparing for Idalia, the storm that is expected to strengthen into a major hurricane before it makes landfall Wednesday along the Gulf Coast. Right now, it's some 20 miles off the western tip of Cuba and it has sustained winds of 70 miles per hour. But forecasters are warning that Adalia could become a Category 3 storm before it hits Florida's Big Bend from Tampa to just south of Tallahassee. Officials say that some areas of the Gulf Coast could see 10 to 12 feet of storm surge and that mandatory and voluntary evacuations have been issued for at least eight counties on Florida's west coast. We have continued to monitor it and we'll continue to update you as that storm progresses. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Seeing in primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now.
4: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.
6: Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.